This is Moshtalja. Albums that we love. Albums that were very important to us when we were growing up. Moshtalja. Thank you for joining us again for another edition of Moshtalja. On this podcast, we're tackling Iron Maiden's 1988 opus, Seven Son of a Seven Son. It was released on April 11th of that year on the EMI record label. Mm-hmm. So what's your initial memories of Seven Son of a Seven Son? Back in 1988, how old were we then? I would imagine I was 13. No. No, sorry, 16. No. I'd have been 15 in the April, probably 16 in the November. No. <laughs> Tell me then. <laughs> you were 14 when it was released and you were 15 that year in October. Okay. I remember that as a glorious time for us because probably, as you've already guessed, listening to this series of nostalgia lookbacks at classic albums that we think are classic albums over the years, there have been albums that have accompanied us in our formative years as we've moved from childlike innocence into plug-pulling puberty. These albums mean a lot to us because we were at the right age at the right time and this type of music appealed to us greatly hard rock and heavy metal and there are no more hard rock nor heavy metal at least from the united kingdom's point of view than iron maiden yeah so i remember as a 14 year old getting the album my mother bought it for me in arklow county wicklow in a shop called hickson's and i got it on cassette tape and I remember the Saturday, my mother bringing it home to me and I popped it into my little cassette player, popped on my headphones, listened to it for the first time and followed along with all the lyrics. And after that, I was a diehard Maiden fan. This was the one that converted me. Now, I had previously been listening to some of the older albums that I'd recorded uh, somewhere in time, Power Slave. And I always enjoyed listening to them and following along the lyrics and enjoying the little story that they would try and tell. Yeah. I picked up my bass and I'm... Doris Stokes, you couldn't see your own ditch, stupid bitch. So Iron Maiden are famous for their galloping riffery, their twin guitar assaults, and for the wailing air raid siren that is known as Paul Bruce Dickinson. Bruce Dickinson, yeah, also known as the Foghorn. <laughs> Foghorn air raid siren. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Iffy Boat Race. Pilot, fencer, farter, felcher, whatever else he's done, he's been good at it. And he was a great Iron Maiden singer. I found a lovely quote on a website called thequietest.com and it describes Seven Son of a Seven Son as containing all that is glorious and mildly deranged about Iron Maiden. For me, Seven Son of a Seven Son is the best Iron Maiden album. Period. That's it. We can stop the podcast now and go home. But we are home because we're broadcasting from home so we can rattle on to our heart's content about all of this guff. Yeah. I would agree. It's it's my personal favourite Iron Maiden album. It's a testament to the band about how subjective those early albums are to people. Some people would go for Number of the Beast. Other people would go for Power Slave. Uh, there'd be even some people who'd say Peace of Mind is, mm-hmm. is the greatest album. Mm-hmm. I have to talk about facts. Martin Birch was the producer, engineer and mixing tape operator on this album. It debuted at number one in the UK album chart and is one of five in total they have to date. It made number 12 in the US. In the USA, the album failed to go platinum. This was a bit of a surprise at the time because the previous three albums had all gone platinum in the States. Uh, Number of the Beast, Peace of Mind and Power Slave. And uh, Seven Sun kind of sold only half as much. That's weird. The Americans rejected them. Too much keyboard. Not enough cowbell. Yeah, I think there was actually cowbell on it. I can't hear it, but (laughs) I've seen cowbells mentioned. Uh, Apparently, Steve Harris was told that the album sounded too European. Facts. The main thing to remember about Seven Son of a Seven Son is that it's a concept album. 
And it's telling the story of a fictional child with supernatural powers and folklore and details how the boy is seen as dangerous in his village for his ability to see the future. The idea was inspired by a fantasy novel by Orson Scott Card called Seventh Son and it told the story of soothsayers in the frontier west. The author, Orson Scott Card, he was in fact a devout Mormon and he may not have been impressed at all with the album's explicit references to the likes of the occultist Alastair Crowley and Lucifer. Mm-hmm. Facts. Seventh Son of a Seventh Son is Iron Maiden's seventh studio album. A launch party was held at Schloss Schnellenberg. Yeah? I think that's in Germany. Das ist groovy. It's nice getting up and looking out of your turret window, said Bruce. Steve was very fond of castles at the time. I love castles too. I'm kind of yeah. obsessed with them. I visit most castles on, on the west coast of Ireland. I hankered after the Lego castle in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> then talking about facts. Facts. The credit lists Martin disappearing armchair Birch. Mm-hmm. Dave Murray explains this. I think at the time during recording, Dave was occupying himself by becoming an amateur magician. He was uh, able to Martin. marry himself. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Amazing magician. He that a lot. Yeah. So Dave was showing Martin Birch magic tricks in his hotel room. After making a lot of drinks disappear, he came up with the ultimate trick and made my chair disappear by throwing it out the window. Hey! In the mid-80s, Maiden signed an unlikely deal with Puma. Adrian Smith explains that they gave us catalogues and said we could have anything. I was restrained. A couple of tracksuits, trainers and a Boris Becker racket. Some of the guys ordered the whole catalogue. Steve Harris says, Rod ate it. You look like a bloody Puma factory. <laughs> what is he like, I? And Bruce comments, Well, I found it quite endearing, really. It just proves we don't give a fuck about fashion. I have to talk about facts every single week. It's a fact. It is a fact. Facts. At the time, Seven Son of a Seven Son caused controversy amongst metal fans for its prominent use of a keyboard. Facts. They then embarked on the seventh tour of a seventh tour, playing over 100 shows, starting in Cologne in April 1988 and finishing in December of 1988. Tour support came from the likes of Megadeth and Guns N' Roses. Bruce Dickinson says he had seen Guns N' Roses at Portsmouth Guildhall, and they were sensational. It's what I'd imagine it was like to see ACDC with Bond when they first came over to England. On August 20th, 1988, Iron Maiden headlined the legendary Monsters of Rock One Day Festival at Castle Donington for the first time to 107,000 people. Epic. It was an amazing achievement for us, says Steve. Rod was saying, we've done 67,000 in advance. And then we had 40,000 turn up on the day. We ended up with 107,000. Now, sadly, there's a footnote to Donington 1988. Two young Scottish metal fans, Alan Dick and Landon Siggers, lost their lives as the sodden ground gave way underfoot from a crowd surge during Guns N' Roses' set. Now, I believe the band, uh, and the band I'm referring to obviously is Iron Maiden, at the time were not told about this tragedy until their set was over. Bruce did say this was their moment of triumph at Donington and it was marred by this. And no entertainment is worth the lives of two people. So I thought I'd mention their names here, so they, they would... I wonder would these two boys like to be remembered that they went out at the height of their joyous teenage lives watching their favourite bands in a great festival in the United Kingdom. Maybe for some of us that live on long after these events have faded from view as we get older and spiral ever further <laughs> down that coil. Maybe. You wanted to go out in the blaze of glory, didn't you? Exactly. Down the front of ACDC. Yeah. I go out in the blaze of glory, I take John Bon Jovi on the top of that rock and I jump down and kill the horror with me. <laughs> I have to talk about facts. 
Fact. Now, the tour was filmed for the Made in England VHS release. And for our younger viewers, VHS is videotapes. Uh, it's like That'll YouTube really now. help them understand. <laughs> <laughs> for the younger viewers, black and white television was in black and white. VHS was what? Explain it further, Adrian. They were cassette tapes, but they didn't just record audio, they recorded visual as well by using a complex magic of <laughs> rust particles and magnetism to recreate these images and sounds in a little box. Excellent. So what the, the Maiden did for this was that they gave 10 fans a camcorder each and got them to record the concert. Fast. Recently, in 2012, the band revisited that show, Icebergs and All, for the Maiden England World Tour, which included another stop at Castle Donington in 2013, where a special Spitfire flypast of the stage was arranged to start the concert. Nice. Harry said, It was amazing. Everyone was sort of blown away with it. Obviously, we knew it was happening at a certain time and we were waiting in anticipation. It was fantastic. It really was. But I didn't expect it to be quite as low as that. Jeez, oh, I cacked me fucking sports pants. The bass strings nearly punged off your guitar, mate. Yeah, Bruce comes in there. But I'm not, not going to give him glory here. He was talking to the Spitfire pilots and then basically organising it. He mightn't just fucking fly them. Peak Bruce, there's never been ever a moment when we've decided when there's been too much Bruce. There has been a lot of Bruce over the last 40 <laughs> years. Bruce has been everywhere. When we listen Bruce to Bruce is everywhere. Bruce is he's omnipotent. <laughs> he's talking to the Spitfire pilots organising what they're going to do. He's talking to Derek Riggs and giving him the ideas for the cover of Seven Son of a He's flying Zeppelins. About, he's shipping oh, cargo. What a great idea. Like, why don't we have, instead of Dante's Inferno with the people burning, why don't we have them all frozen in the background? Takes the credit for everything, sure. Yeah, he's happy to do it as well. Confident lad. Author, actor, fencer, felcher, philanthropist, Bruce. Facts. Seven Sun was recorded at Musicland Studios in Munich, Germany in February and March 1988. This was actually a studio built by synth pioneer Giorgio Moroder. We're up all night to get lucky. Facts. Longtime Maiden producer Martin Birch was of course returning to a scene of a past triumph. He produced the seminal Rainbow Rising album here in 1976. Now that is a classic album. Bruce describes the fact that they were all knocked out that Rainbow Rising had been done there and some great Queen albums as well. But he described it as very small. There was a really low ceiling and a tiny little control room. Adrian also reminisced that he used to try out some of Brian May's old amps while he was there. And Nico reminisced. All you had to do was jump out of bed into the lift and I would drop you right off outside the studio front door. <laughs> Pleading for those hazy mornings after a good lashing the night before with Sooty. Nico, I don't know if you know, but uh, Sooty and Sweet, they've been playing the drums a bit. And they wonder if we could, like, play along with you. Would That's that be it. okay? Yeah, sure. Do the cross there, to your kit and give yourself four in on the bass drum. Go on. Okay. <laughs> I have to talk about facts. Every single week. It's a fact. The cover hit me straight away. Those sky blue colours and this weird skeletal floating eddy torso between the glaciers. Although I only had it as a tiny tape cassette inlay sleeve at the time. Mm. I remember getting the poster of the full painting in Metal Hammer and pinning it to the wall. Mm. And I loved that And then did you see what, what was on the flip side of the vinyl? On the back sleeve was all the eddies from the previous covers frozen on the landscape. Oh yeah. That was Bruce's idea, sure. Was it? That lot of things of everything. He's brilliant. So the artwork was provided by Derek Riggs, as I mentioned earlier. If you look at it closely, he's got his trademark in the water, a unique symbol which depicts his initials, a mirrored D and R on the right hand side. 
Oh. It's hidden on a subtle place in most of the albums, usually near Maiden's mascot, Eddie. Derek said he didn't feel like painting all of Eddie at the time. We just chopped him off and made him look kind of non-pleasant. That's uh, the best way to describe all the Iron Maiden covers from 1980 onwards. Non-pleasant. Facts. Manager Rod Smallwood says the band asked Derek to come up with something weird and conceptual for the cover and then tried as much as possible to replicate that look and vibe in the show. Now, if you ask Rod, it was very successful. Wherever you may be listening to this podcast, we, in our formative years growing up, uh, we were born and reared in Ireland in the British Isles. That's right. So for us, there was precious little rock music on air or in the media at that time. On other episodes of Nostalgia, we explain why, and we can go over the same old story again, that there was nothing available. Now, of course, on digital radio, you can get what you want. But back in the analogue days of the 1980s, we could only listen to maybe one radio station and hope that a rock single might chart and then have some type of airplay once an hour. But what we did have, and we were lucky, and we've explained this before because of the way we were getting the transmissions from overseas from the transmitter of the BBC in Wales, we were able to receive the Friday Rock Show on a Friday night, would you believe? Uh, <laughs> hosted, <laughs> hosted by Tommy Vance, and he'd play all the rock music. You could just lie back and enjoy it and press record on your little high-tech cassettes that you'd buy up in the post office for about one Irish punt. Oh, the high-tech ones were cheap. In our little village, high-tech were the high-tech cassettes of their day. The height of modern technology. I'd go up to Mrs. Brosnan in the post office and I'd buy my three cassettes and then I'd run back down and I'd prepare to record the Friday Rock Show that night. Yeah, I do recall you would religiously record it. You had a mountain of cassette tapes. You wouldn't just record a show, uh, listen to it and then tape over it with next week's show. You would uh, archive them. Yeah, and I still have quite a majority of those tapes. So the Friday Rock Show is where we, as giddy 14-year-olds, that's where we got our rock fix. And let's talk about the Friday Rock Show, presented by Tommy Vance until he was ousted in a woke-wake storm in 1993 by Claire Sturgis. Was that her name? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's That's still working. Her. She's an absolute radio. She's on absolute shite radio. Good for She's her. She's playing the Foo Fighters every 10 minutes. Nice. National Radio 1. My name is Tommy Vance, and welcome to the Friday Rock Show from BBC Radio 1. Tommy Vance, the Friday Rock Show. Back in the UK, So the Friday Rock Show, Iron Maiden recorded one session for the Friday Rock Show in 1979. This featured Running Free, which was released as a single early the following year and became their first UK chart hit, reaching number 34 in 1980. Their most successful single tracks were Run to the Hills, which reached number 7 in 1982, and hit the top 10 again in a re-recording 20 years later, and Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter in 1991, their only number one. It sold 29,918 copies, making it the lowest first week sale for such a single. Irking BBC radio jockey Jackie Brambles into a moany tirade. Well, as Steve Harris said from atop his John Deere tractor, Fuck you, Jackie Brambles! And Bruce was a bit bitter in his autobiography as well. He was saying they would have been better off worrying about the likes of Jimmy Savile than worrying about metal. Iron Maiden were played 72 times, from 1979 up to the first song from Seventh Son, Moonchild, in February 1988, with Ian Gillen and Bruce Dickinson hosting the show together. It was a pre-released cassette copy of the first song off the album on a Comic Relief Red Nose Day special Friday rock show. 
The first single of Seven Son of a Seven Son was Can I Play With Madness, released in March 1988. Thereafter, the floodgates opened and Tommy played Seven Son to death. <laughs> and quite right too. By way of honouring the Friday Rock Show's heavy airplay of Iron Maiden, I'm going to take you through a little bit of a journey on the Friday Rock Show from all of their first singles from their albums. Let's listen to when they first appeared on the Friday Rock Show in 1979. Impressive. First ever Radio 1 session by Iron Maiden. The track there was called Iron Maiden. And they're currently on tour around the United Kingdom along with Praying Mantis. Praying Mantis, that is, and they're a good band. More from them later. Iron Maiden and Sanctuary. Beautiful, beautiful session by Iron Maiden. Going to be big, I think, in the 80s. You're right, Tommy! Nostradimus. Uh, that was December 14th, 1979. The next first single was from February 1982. The first single that features Bruce, Bruce, mine's a pint, ex of Samson, who is now the lead singer with Iron Maiden. That first single is called Run to the Hills, it's out on EMI. And they start a big tour of this country on Saturday the 27th of February. You can imagine Pan's people in the studio crotch high at Tommy. The next first single was in 1983. I don't want to. <laughs> the next first single was in 1983. Can you guess what it is yet? What was the last one? Well, Run to the Hills was the first single from Number of the Beast. That was in February 1982. And this next one is April 15th, 1983. The first single from Peace of Mind, Adrian. Fly Vickers. Well, here's another uh, brand new single from Iron Maiden. This is a Martin Birch production and it's called The Flight of Icarus. <laughs> Good scream there, Bruce. That's Iron Maiden flying back into the realms of Greek mythology with The Flight of Icarus. It's another new single out right now. The sharp tools among you might realise that that was not Tommy Vance. And for extra, brownie, <laughs> for extra brownie points, who was that, Adrian? Think Martin Birch. Put it together, Adrian. Ian Gillen. Yes! Ian Gillen was a sometimes presenter of the Friday Rock Show when Tommy was stuck on vacation somewhere and couldn't get the flight back. July 27th, 1984. What was the first single? Two Minutes Midnight. Not a sign check, but the brand new single by Iron Maiden. Just come out, it has. I just got it in my hands tonight for the walk into broadcasting voice. It is called Two Minutes to Midnight and it will be featured on their new album Power Slave to come out soon. I think actually in September. When they start doing gigs all around the country, they start on actually the Tuesday, that is the 11th of September. Iron Maiden, two minutes to midnight. Next, it's October 18th, 1985. What was the first single? Uh, they probably did one of the running tracks live off of this. Mm. Uh, I'm going to go to Run to the Hills live. No. One of the tracks you'll find on the double live album, which is out by Iron Maiden at the moment. The track, of course, Phantom of the Opera, which incidentally is going to be their next single. Many thanks to Steve Harris for coming into our studio tonight here on the Friday Rock Show. Give us a bit of a chat. Nice guy. Very straightforward. Like most, I think, great rock superstars, totally unaffected, no baloney and none of the old nonsense. Just straightforward people. He loves them. And why wouldn't he? Everyone loves Steve. <clears throat> August 22nd, 1986. First single. Wasted Years. They start touring the United Kingdom right at the beginning of October. They are, of course, Iron Maiden. That's their new single. It is called Wasted Years. The B-side is a track called Reach Out, which is sung not by Bruce, but by Adrian Smith, which makes him sound like a completely different band. And let me into your life. Here's something extra from September the 26th, 1986. 
from Iron Maiden. In front of me now in our studios, Bruce Dickinson. Bruce, welcome. Hello. Yes, nice to be here. What are we going to see this time? I say see this time when you're on tour because I believe you've done quite a lot of changes to the stage show. We, we were thinking, well, maybe the stage show in Power Slave was very... It was a very theatrically realistic kind of show. It was like, uh, almost like a little miniature film set. And you know, we, thought, we thought we'd clean up our act a little bit and go a bit more high tech and a bit, still keep a lot of uh, depth in terms of the effects, but maybe make them a little bit, uh, a little bit less historical and everything. And that goes with the album, you know, Somewhere in Time. And uh, Eddie stuck in the future as kind of like a half Terminator you know, six million dollar Eddie type robot thing. Wandering around the universe, doing for people, good or evil, for no particular reason. <laughs> <laughs> Just because he wants to. Because <laughs> he wants, because it's there, you know. Exactly. <laughs> Summer in Time is the album title. This is the album track. Mm. And then, 1988, February 5th, listen to the lads. We've got to play a bit of, a bit of the Iron Man. Absolutely. Track. Absolutely. Uh, whatever you want. Okay. Yeah, Can right, you tell us the sure. title of the track? No. Okay, this is it. Yes. Heard anywhere in the world before and not due out for three months. That's part of the first track on probably what's going to be side well of the brand new Iron Maiden album. That's right. Copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. You wait to hear on CD. Blow your head off. Right, mate. Okay. Well, thank you very much indeed for coming in, gentlemen. Bruce, thanks for coming in. That's all right. Good luck at the fencing thing you're doing tomorrow. Yes, I know, yes. Go for it. Never know. I'm putting up a fence tomorrow. Ian Gillen, thank you very much indeed as well. No, wood, wood, wood. I like I'll just leave those two gardeners to talk amongst themselves. Bob, thank you very much I've indeed. Got an album. Yeah. Got Bob from Magnum. Next on the Friday Rock Show, March the 4th, 1988. What's the single? Can I Play With Madness? Iron Maiden, that is the new single, Can I Play With Madness? If you buy it the CD format, you get Black Parts, Blues and Massacre as well. Iron Maiden, according to the publicity stamped on the back of the CD, Playing With Madness World Tour 1988, Monsters of Rock, Donington, 20th of August, only UK appearance. Now you know, Iron Maiden, Can I Play With Madness? And there's going to be a, an Eddie Water transfer available <laughs> when you buy the record. The band have also, it says here, used a whole new concept for their new video. It's been directed by Julian Doyle, who worked with Terry Gilliam from the Monty Python film situation and graham chapman is in the video also monty python fame now what's new about that i haven't got the faintest idea this is from april fool's day in 1988 my name is tommy vance and welcome to all you ever wanted to know about iron maiden starring bruce dickinson now included later on in this program you're going to hear four tracks from maiden's new album seventh son of a seventh son being played for the very first time on any radio station anywhere in the world it's a friday rock show exclusive so Let's get into it. Hello, everybody. My name's Bruce Dickinson, and I'm sitting on a train at the moment on the way to Frankfurt with Tommy here, and we're going to go and see a, a show by Joe Cocker. That's not why I'm talking to you. I'm here to answer your questions. Welcome back to St. Michal's Home of the Bewildered, where two men reminisce of their teenage years and their love of rock music on Marstalgia. Oh, okay, so let's get into the seventh son of a seventh son. Track by track! Starting with track one, Moonchild. This track is written by Smith and Dickinson. Bruce had come close to quitting the band after the Power Slave tour, but he just decided to make time for himself 
and be the singer for the Somewhere in Time album. Uh, therefore, he wrote no songs for Somewhere in Time. For Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, Steve began the writing process at his home in Essex, Shearing Hall. When Steve pitched the idea Steve lives concept, in a hall? Yeah. Why am I surprised? When Steve pitched the idea of a concept album to Bruce, he got his heart pounding again, and he once again became involved in the writing process for Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. Moonchild is one of his contributions. Mm. Bruce drew the title Moonchild from a 1917 Alistair Crowley novel. Right. Alistair Crowley pops up everywhere. I think uh, Led Zeppelin were big fans. Ozzy. The symbology there on Led Zeppelin 4 was also sneakily replicated on the back sleeve of Life After Death on one of the tombstones, if you look closely enough. Oh. So in Alistair Crowley's novel, black and white magicians fight over the fate of an unborn child during World War I. Crowley actually believed the creation of a moon child was possible. Alistair Crowley wrote a novel called Moonchild, Bruce <laughs> explains. The process of incarnating a demon or soul into body is called creating a homunculus. The idea is Lucifer helped create this thing in a mother's womb and she gives birth to the seventh son. A little fear shall be your cult. The twins, they are exhausted. Seven is this night. Gemini's rising as the red lips kiss to bite. Seven angels, seven demons battle for his soul. When Gabriel lies sleeping, this child was born to die. Uh-oh. So Bruce sings this song as the character of Lucifer, who is asking the mother of the seventh son to kill her unborn. Listening to this, I reckon, as well as Alistair Crowley, this is also directly influenced by the Seventh Son novel mentioned earlier by Orson Scott Card. Now, in the novel itself, before the birth of the Seventh Son, an evil force strikes down his eldest brother, Vigor. The idea of this was that if his brother had died, he wouldn't be the Seventh Son. So all seven brothers must be alive for the Seventh Son to be born. But his brother hangs on and only dies after he's born. Continue. <laughs> Another thing I found out while I was researching this is that a mandrake is actually a plant used in witchcraft potions and according to legend will scream when uprooted from the ground. Mm. Old Stevie believed there was five or six songs that could have opened the album but Moonchild was the best choice without doubt and the perfect opener. Adrian came up with the riff. Listening to this recently, I really enjoy that intro. I, li I like good rock intros to albums. It really sets the scene of how epic it should feel and how good the songs meld into each other. Adrian Smith recalled having a lot of trouble with the intro. He had a demo of the song, but the band couldn't seem to recreate the feel of what was on there. In the end, they went with a sort of a compromise. Now, Bruce talking about... I don't know if he's talking about Moonchild here or the album in no, general. He's talking he's about himself. <laughs> He said Steve said he wanted to do an album around his seventh son and the mystical powers he might have. He grabbed my attention. His creation and the temptations that he would go through in his life. It's a battle for his soul between good and evil. This intro is just Bruce singing about seven deadly sins over acoustic guitar strumming. And then a kaleidoscope of synths open up Moonchild before building into a powerful driving riff. It really is a fast heavy opener in the tradition of Aces High. And you've got some great Nico drum rolls in there. And I also enjoy Bruce cackling like a madman at the end. Nico's drum roll sounds something that you'd buy in a local pastry shop. <laughs> Some nice Nico drum rolls. Would you like one? I'm going buying it's a pack of five. Go. So when Nico retires in the near future from drumming, he can open up a little um, pastry shop. Selling His face looks rolls. like kneaded pastry. <laughs> Yeah, you can have little pies with Nico's face on it. <laughs> That's all he has to do is slap his buns right into the pastry. <laughs> so it. So, uh, Moonchild? I like it. And the production quality is the best that Maiden have ever achieved, thanks to Martin Birch. 
as far as production goes, I think I think that's subjective. Now, I really like it, but for some people, it's a bit too polished. I think that's probably what Steve felt about it as well. I think on the next album, then they tried to go back to basics and they recorded it in his shed or something you know, to get that kind of raw sound from the first album. Which sounded shite. You can imagine if you're talking about some little child who's the seventh son, pursued and hunted, and there's terror and mystery, and it sounds like holy smoke. You wouldn't buy into it. Track two on Seventh Son of a Seventh Son is Infinite Dreams. And this one is from Steve Harris. Steve explains, I do have nightmares, but usually only when we're writing an album. Then your mind just gets so overactive with all these ideas flying about inside, and it's difficult to sleep. How to make money. That's what Infinite Dreams is about. Now, during the creation of Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, Steve Harris didn't want it to be a hard rule that the band could not write about anything else other than the concept. But he did want to have that thread running all the way through it. He believes Infinite Dreams isn't totally in line with the concept. Infinite Dreams describes how the child, who is the seventh son, has his sleep plagued with visions. He wonders about the concepts of heaven and hell and what is his destiny. He is curious, but unsure if any of it is real. The strange occurrences can't be all coincidence, but he'd like to know the truth. Musically, this is one of the most complex compositions on the album. It doesn't follow the traditional structure, so I would put this and Seventh Son of a Seventh Son down as two progressive rock tracks on the album. It starts off slow and understated with a funky little riff. The first verse then has a ballad tempo. It then builds powerfully with a rat-a-tat-tat tempo and loads of floating keyboards. Bruce's scream ushers in another instrumental section. Then there's a mid-late section with Bruce pleading, help me. <laughs> and then excellent solos from Smith and Murray. There's got fact, to be just more to it than this. Exactly. The final course is quite uplifting and he's hoping to reincarnate and play the game again and again and again. Tell you what Bruce said about this concept on Made in England 88. He said, like most things, it got about halfway down the track and then sort of veered off at a tangent. Because whenever we're doing concept albums in Maiden, we've never followed the plot slavishly. We've gone about halfway through it and then done a song about Battersea Dogs Home in the middle of it or something. <laughs> you think, why is that on there? Just because it is. <laughs> As part of our um, look at Seven Son of a Seven Son, I would be remiss not to try and explain the concept of the album with you. Okay. Track it, Adrian, track it! Track three. Now we're getting Can I into play it! with Madness! Now we're getting into it! Three songwriting credits on this. Adrian Smith, Bruce Dickinson and Steve Harris. And this is where Arn Maiden went supernova. Yeah, so this started out as a ballad called On the Wings of Egypt. On the Wings of Egypt? On the wings of Egypt. Uh, this started out as a ballad called On the Wings of Eagles, says Adrian Smith. I had chorus, mm -hmm. chords and melody. Mm -hmm. Then Bruce added the verse and suggested speeding it up. Later on, we actually rehearsed the song. Steve came up with the instrumental section. Would you believe Bruce and Adrian had a huge row because Adrian wasn't sure about the song? During rehearsal, they couldn't figure out how to get it out of the breakdown. They tried key changes and all sorts, until Bruce said, Why don't we just stop? Though it has, from out of nowhere, an a cappella. Can I play with madness? And that's why the track ends so abruptly. Which now, was the hook one, that got a lot of people onto Maiden. It did. This song, and I'm going to talk about the concept here, is about the young man seeking answers to his supernatural questions, and he goes to a prophet with a magical crystal ball. But the prophet looks at his crystal ball, and the young man sees nothing there. He bought the wrong the crystal ball. The prophet laughs at the man. That's because you're too blind to see the vision, he says. But the fact is, 
He's too blind to see the real truth, which is there is no vision and the prophet is a fraud. And it's lucky they gave the prophet a generic laugh because the prophet looked and he laughed at me. Ha ha, he said. It would have been a slightly different song as the prophet would have laughed in a kind of a sneery, begrudging way. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, it would have been maybe not such a cool song if the prophet laughed in a kind of... <laughs> Don't be laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. You can't see, because you're too blind to see. <laughs> I'm a prophet. <laughs> like Basil Brush or something. That's a good observation. But um, thanks to the hackney riffmeister, Mr. Smith, he brought it home. Good old Adrian. Underrated. Now, the video of Can I Play With Madness starred Monty Python legend Graham Chapman in one of his final roles, playing an irritable art instructor. Dave spoke of his encounter with Chapman and says, He came to one of our shows. We had a nice chat. He said he'd been working on a video all day with fake plastic deer that kept falling over. Esoteric. Well, that's Dave. Now, Dave married himself, so how esoteric can one get? You Graham, you know, Graham Chapman, he died at the age of 48. I believe he died from throat cancer, which Bruce went on to struggle himself with in later years. So let's talk about Can I Play With Madness. This single entered the UK charts at number four and reached number three. Tell me, because you would know this, who were number two and number one at that time? Who I kept them off Ross the top? And, and Aswad. <laughs> and what were the songs? If it was Bross, it was probably When Will I Be Famous or something, Aswad. Aswad only had one number one. Don't turn around. Aha. Uh -huh. You'll be seeing me crying. So yeah, I'll, I'll always have a soft spot for Can I Play With Madness because I do remember listening to the chart and my heart was starting to pound as they went further. I think it was Bruno Brooks went further and further up the top 10 and there was still no Maiden. I was thinking, jeez, the Maiden could be number one. But uh, number four came in at, I remember. Straight in and number four is Iron Maiden and Can I Play With Madness. And they used to have this lovely sting on the top 40 then. It was like, Ching -ching, this metallic sound. Number four. And then Bruce comes in. Oh, he jumped around the room. Fan. Now, the B-side of the single was Black Bart Blues. Do you remember this one? I do. I remember we played that in our local pub, which was on we the corner of a street it, yes. called The Corner House. With a microphone and yeah. a boombox. <laughs> so we, in the corner house. we played it on the jukebox for, what, 10p, and then we recorded it on our little sharp cassette player with a microphone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the song is about a suit of armour that Bruce Dickinson bought from a gas station in Florida, completely on a whim, while on tour, and this suit of armour rolled around in the back of the tour bus and witnessed many sordid episodes. Black by Twack! The next track on the Seventh Son of a Seventh Son album is track four, The Evil That Men Do, and this was an Adrian Smith, Bruce Dickinson and Steve Harris composition. This song is based on a quote from William Shakespeare's tragedy, Julius Caesar. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. Bruce claims this song is about our protagonist losing his virginity. Unfortunately, he loses it to Lucifer, who comes to him in the guise of a temptress woman. So, as Bruce describes it, he basically gets date raped by Lucifer. Nice. What's that going to do to your average adolescent brain? Well, he slept in the dust with his daughter, her eyes red with the slaughter of innocence. Yeah, the daughter of Lucifer. He's saying it was Lucifer disguised as a woman. Disguised as his own daughter? Did Lucifer have a daughter? That's what Bruce said. He loses it to Lucifer, who comes to him in the guise of a temptress woman. Well, you know, the evil that men do lives on and on. 
I thought we'd mention old Janik here now. He believes uh, Evil Zapmendu is a fan favourite and describes it as a live powerhouse. It's hard to keep in the pocket as you tend to run away with it. The maiden gallop does it. It's hard to rein yourself in. Out of the trenches and at him. It does offer up the image of the trenches and all the maiden lads are ready with the guitars and then they listen to the whistle blow and then they just rise up and run towards the enemy. So the evil that men do, eh? Instantly recognisable by its opening chords. Yep. It's probably one of the more straightforward, simple tracks and it's full of energetic riffing. Nothing wrong with being uh, simple. I love the bridge. Living on a razor's edge, balancing on a ledge, and the catchy chorus. Yep. Another brilliant guitar solo from Adrian Smith it was at the peak of his powers. And I would safely say this is one of Maiden's all-time classics. I concur. The Evil That Men Do reached number five in the UK singles chart. The singles B-sides are re-recordings of Prowler and Charlotte DeHarrett from the band's debut album, only with Bruce singing this time instead of Paul Diano. Onwards to track five on Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, and it is the title track. And for those of you listening in analog, it's the first track of side two. Quite a long song. It runs at nine minutes, 53 seconds. I have to tell you, when I listened to this recently, it flew by and I love this song. It's like an unsung hero holding up the foundations of the whole album. And I think it's criminally overlooked. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I think this is one of the couple of songs that are directly influenced by the Orson Card novel. This is a nine minute song with nothing to say. The lyrics are very sparse. There's only three verses in the whole thing. And the chorus is just repeating Seventh Son of a Seventh Son millions of times. The song itself is just describing the birth of the Seventh Son and how it was eagerly anticipated by his siblings and how these mysterious forces of good and evil are struggling over him and, and looking to use his powers for their own gain. So it shall be written, so it shall be done, says Bruce at the end. But not yes. really at the end. It's about five minutes into the song, and then there's another four <laughs> and a half minutes of instrumental madness. So the song itself starts off with a marching riff on their synthesizers, creating dramatic choir sounds, which give it an atmosphere of grandeur. It's heavy, melodic, and the overall vibe of the first half is epically foreboding to the rest of the album. It finishes then with a calm, melodic outro, like something from 80s sci-fi series Chucky. I just had a thought when I went for a piss during what you were just talking about there. Every time a new album came out in those days, they would always say this album is our best album. And nobody knew it's just because they're on a high after recording it and completing it and they're in the promotional phase and they're saying this is the best stuff we've ever done. This is the best. Maybe they're trying to follow up glorious albums from the past and they failed to do so. But in this case, when Our Maiden came out in 1988 and they said that this is our best album, yeah, this is the best work we've done to date. They weren't lying because after it, they all went to shit. Do you think Seven Sun was the peak of their powers? Yeah, I would say Our Maiden have the seven classic albums. And then you had the Rocky period of the 90s. But then in 2000, when Brave New World came out and it was the reunion era, just good albums there. But? You know, nothing that matches the level of, of the 80s output. You said yourself after, what, Fear of the Dark came out in 1992, that's it, you threw down your pen, you got up from the seat and you walked out the door and you never came back until the year 2000. Especially when you go back to what was previously done in the previous album, Holy Smoke and them running around on tractors in fields of sunflower. Very, very strange. <laughs> I kind of what? quit what? When, Party, when, yeah. when Bruce left. Yeah. I know we knock him for, you know, knowing everything, but he did know when to leave. I think uh, it was burnout, 
so many albums in a short space of time yeah maybe they're running out of ideas as you describe Steve as the Ayatollah he was the man steering the ship but he needed maybe somebody to slap him, him in the right direction slap him around his headband there. yeah take the and base. then they lose Bruce then they lose Adrian they get blazing and nobody's listening to them anymore simply and there's an immediate change when you get the classic lineup back on the Brave New World album mm. I wonder how that really happened we don't have access to these guys we don't know them but how that would have come about that they got back together really saying listen we fucked up would Steve admit that it was such a bad choice and a really bad way but they had to do something to continue to tour and to be active and to work as a band maybe they had the legal obligations Steve it's his band however he lost two of the greatest as we can see from Seven Son of a Seven Son the writers the musicians the melodies from Adrian Smith Bruce's sound it's synonymous with Maiden you can't replace it with anything else Blaze Bailey come in I remember when Wolfsbane came out and they were painting the town red back in 1987 and to have Blaze take over Iron Maiden was like having a taxi driver becoming the queen Bruce elevated them to a different level. After Killers, they were a good rock band. When he comes in on Number of the Beast, screaming, they're elevated into the arena fillers. Which brings us to Track it, Adrian, track it! Track six, The Prophecy. And this one is a Dave Murray and Steve Harris composition. Now, Steve Harris is quoted as saying, It's our joke that Davey comes up with a song every three years. It sounded kind of medieval. When he comes up with these pieces, he comes to me and asks me to take it and do something with it. He has riffs, melodies, guitar harmonies and things. Then I play him what I've got. He grins and goes, yeah. In the prophecy, our hero, the seventh son, tries to warn the village of an impending disaster. But they don't listen. And then when that happens, they blame the poor seventh son for bringing a curse on them. Now, I love the intro to this. There's a gentle keyboard, and this washes over a delicate folky riff before it's cut into by dramatic guitars and Bruce urgently singing of impending disasters to the village. It's a tour de force from Dave Murray with lots of brilliant jiggy guitars and kind of a flamenco classical guitar finish. So this would be a tribute to Dave if I had to make one. Yeah. It grows on you. It's a grower. Even the silly Dungeons and Dragons, here's Satan talking and menacingly planning your future for you. It grew on me. Why won't you listen to me? It is so hard to understand that I am the real seventh son. Your life and death on me depends. You can imagine the kids coming back to the village and telling everybody, you're doomed if you don't understand who I am. And they're like, fuck off, will you? Mentioning that, like it's one of the songs that actually moved the story along. Which is probably why it was included. More happens in that than Seven Son of a Seven Son. I'm telling you. This is Moshtalja. Albums that we love. Albums that were very important to us when we were growing up. Right, so let's quickly move on to the penultimate track. Track 7, The Clairvoyant, and this is another Steve Harris lyric. The Clairvoyant was inspired by the death of British psychic Doris Stokes. Steve Harris explains it. I read that she had passed away, and I thought, I wonder if she could see her own death. I'm not the sort of person to go and see a Clairvoyant. I'd rather not know. Pondering there by Stevie, could she see her own demise? And next minute he has a song. So the clairvoyant opens with a chunky bass solo riff from Steve, followed by the rhythm guitar firing up like a powerful engine ticking over. Then the guitar riff before Nico crashes in, <coughs> rather like a tractor. <laughs> Next minute she fires up and... 
We are at the point in the story here on the Clairvoyant where the boy is struggling to control his powers and they're getting stronger. The chorus is galloping, defiant and dramatic and features another soaring solo by Dave Murray here. Again, kudos to old Davey boy. It closes on an uplifting note with I feel again. Which is for me the best part of the whole album. Like on Infinite Dreams, we're just very casually getting into the meaning of life here. Asking that very profound question, isn't it strange? As soon as you're born, dying. Existential. Just by looking through your eyes, <laughs> he could see the future penetrating right in through your mind. You should do an album like William Shatner. <laughs> just reading people's songs. <laughs> and that brings us to the final track, track eight. Only The Good Die Young by Steve Harris and Bruce Dickinson. It's a great little finisher, I have to say. This probably could have been a single. Now, Steve has mentioned this song as one he wouldn't mind playing live at some point. He also thinks that the song title, it's a true statement. It's the album closer and a catchy maiden galper in the style of the trooper. Bruce's vocals are very bitter and vengeful as he sings some of my favourite lyrics from the album. So until the next time, have a good sin. And Super Steve even provides a bass solo on this one, which has a plucky classical vibe to it. It finishes with all the instruments crashing together before repeating that acoustic intro. Seven deadly sins, seven ways to win. <laughs> <laughs> this part of the song is the seventh son doubting that his own power is real. Now, this is my interpretation of it, but if it is real, Showing others the future might lead to his own demise. Disillusioned, he leaves his responsibility to do good and leaves us sinners to our flawed Christian beliefs. So in a way, that would be a happy ending to the album. So, summing it all up there, Seven Son of a Seven Son is probably Maiden's most successful album. And also, sadly, this was Adrian Smith's last album with the band until 2000. After an argument with the rest of the band, he quit. Bruce describes it in his autobiography as Adrian had walked into a lift shaft, but there was no lift. He also says uh, Adrian, he thinks, didn't want to quit, but he was kind of left with no choice. But an underrated guitarist, a driving creative force in Maiden, which they missed. And I know they got in Yannick Jurors on the next album, but, but it was a completely different style. I think Adrian was, was taking you to the point of orgasm. You're just on the brink. <laughs> Yannick's is more... The rotten process. Yannick's drilling you anally. Adrian is softly fondling your undercarriage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. You've probably never heard guitar styles described like that before. It's a first. <laughs> on Mostalgia. more like this on the Nostalgia podcast. Download all of them now. Like and rate us. Leave us comments. Open yourself up for a torrent of abuse. <laughs> 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 we will read them. And we will question your existence. <laughs> Crank so the UK's foremost rock magazine, Kerrang! was launched in June 1981, going on to print nearly 2,000 issues over the last four decades. Now, Iron Maiden. They first appeared in the second edition in August 1981, when Kerrang! ran a story that Iron Maiden would split with singer Paul Diano. And also in this issue was a picture of Samson on waste ground in front of a pylon, gathered around an alabaster statue of a topless lady, her breasts ably supported by singer Bruce Bruce and drummer Thunderstick. <laughs> In the third issue in September 1981, along with a first cover mention, Iron Maiden came out to quash rumours of singer Paul Diano's departure. Absolute bollocks, 
said Paul himself from New York on tour. Manager Rod Smallwallet agreed, as he side-eyed band leader bassist Steve Harris, who also added, As soon as we were far away from home, all these strange rumours start up. All these funny things about me having a control in that. Harris saying he winced at his nickname Ayatollah. <laughs> So even back then... In the fourth issue's news section, it says, Contrary to denials in last month's Kerrang, the band may be moving forward sans Diano, as Kerrang had good reason to believe that a certain new Wobbum vocalist has been offered to take over the leather and chains. <laughs> you measuring your mic distance, Adrian? Don't be spoiling the magic. <laughs> The fifth crying in November 1981, because it was monthly back then, I had a second cover mention of Iron Maiden with the Irons touring in Yugoslavia and Steve Harris published a diary entry. Paul Diano was still singing with them at that time, yet a page before said milky diary spread. There's Iron Maiden with their new lead singer Bruce Dickinson getting the points in. Huh? We're all replaceable. Kerrang! issue number 8 in February 1992 tells us that former Pat Travers drummer Nico McBrain has left French farm metalers trust due to personal differences with singer Bernard Bouffoisin and Iron Maiden will unfurl new lead singer Bruce Dickinson on their forthcoming UK tour at the Wolverhampton Civic Hall on February 27th. They did do a couple of warm-up gigs beforehand with Bruce's first ever gig with the lads at the Ruskin Arms under the moniker Genghis Khan on December the 23rd 1981. Dave Murray's birthday! Issue 10 came in March with a third cover mention. Bruce claimed the lavatories were truly bolognese in Bologna, Italy, where the first real 5,000-strong gig happened, and subsequently he ran to the hills into copious amounts of beer. This will not be the first mention of bolognese Bruce, let me say. Issue 12 brought a fourth cover mention and a review of the Wolverhampton gig. Dante Benuto liked them, but warned of their rigid song structures. Issue 13 reviewed the Number of the Beast album, Chris Welch describing it as a thunderous set of performances that deserved to dominate the album charts for weeks ahead. Properly not hyperbolic was Chris. Mm. Finally Maiden scored their first Kerrang! band cover, minus four members, it was only Bruce, and an interview in issue 25 in September 1982. Eight months later and not a peep inside the pages until in issue 42 a cover mention and a Steve Harris Bahamas diary entry. Along with Dante Benuto's review of Iron Maiden's new album Peace of Mind, saying, the odd stuttering step aside, this is plainly a gamble in the right direction. Two weeks later, in issue 43, another cover mention brought us the culinary and atomical delight of a double-page pull-out picture of Bruce Dickinson with an open gob full of bolognese, dribbling off, his, bolognese. dribbling off his tongue, you see? I think you had that pinned to your wall, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I was an interesting child, wasn't I? A small picture of Bruce drinking tea surfaced on the cover of issue 45, and then in issue 52, October 1983, Bruce was back on the cover, full frame this time, but still eating something that looked like his brains, celebrating the, celebrating the all-time Kerrang! Reader's album chart, with peace of mind, top of the heap. But that goes back to what I was saying earlier, it's, it's very subjective, which is the best Iron Maiden album. If you're 14 in 1983, of course you're going to say Peace of Mind is the best album. If we're 14 in 1988, of course we're going to say Seven Sun is the best album. Oh, to tame a land. Oh my god. Dinosaurs. Cavemen. Issue 60 had Howard Johnson toasting the Phenomenal Five interviewing the lads on their 185-date World Peace Tour of 1983-1984. World <gasps> Peace Tour, I like it. <laughs> Good playing words there, I like it. Issue 67 in May 1984, back there on the Ars page, we have a shot of the boys announcing a new album has just been completed and they'll tour the United Kingdom in September. Mm. Tantalising. In September, issue 76, Maiden mascot Eddie snarls his way onto the cover and goes to Poland 
Poland in August with journo Howard Johnson and photographer Ross Halfin to meet the chaps on tour and a seven-page interview and picture pileup ensues, including obligatory Halfin celluloid of naked rock band members. Uh, members. Oh, Ross. In a communal bath. <laughs> there were not that many suds either. <laughs> Three more pages of this interview spat over into the following issue. Elsewhere in this issue, number 76, Power Slave is reviewed by Mick Wall, spouting that Power Slave may one day be recognised as Iron Maiden's greatest photographic achievement. Was Mick Wall 14 at the time? I would put Power Slave at number two on my chart. Ooh. Four classics and a two at the start, two at the end. Issue 88 gives us Steve Harris and Dave Murray on the cover. Maiden's third full one of real live human band member covers, with an interview and a picture spread from the Rockin' Rio Festival. And the following fortnightly issue, 89, has Mick Wall turn in a four-page interview with Steve Harris in New York. Come issue 95 from June 1985, we're all surprised to see a shot of all the lads at a wedding. <gasps> On, Dave's. Well, yes. And on first look, it seems Dave Murray is marrying himself. <laughs> really? Look, because there's Dave in a tuxedo. There's Dave beside Dave in a white wedding gown with a garland of flowers on his head. Bang your head, though, a little closer, for we're not actually seeing double as the female Dave is not Dave dressed up in a dress opposite himself, but in fact, it's Dave's blooming bride, Tamar Yarian. Issue 104 has Steve on the cover, Maiden's fourth cover of Kerrang! with a new live album, Live After Death, with Mick Wall pronouncing it TOTAL DEATH, the nearest any person can get to being on a world tour without actually leaving town, he said. 25 issues pass, and there's no Maiden! The UK's prominent hard rock band not covered in Kerrang! for nearly a year. But September 1986, we're getting nearer. In issue 129, the Maiden are back! The new album, <gasps> Somewhere in Time, is reviewed by Mick Wall, a KKKKK5K ejaculatory fest, with Wall saying it's one explosion after another, with the poser, is this their finest hour? Only time will tell. Mick loved him. He did. The next issue, number 130, Bruce is back on the cover again. Yay for Bruce, loud and proud in his tight white pants, with a five-page interview from Sylvie Simmons in Zagreb, Yugoslavia, on tour. 131 has a great pull-out poster of the new stage. Issue 132, a live gig review from the Apollo Manchester. And 134 has a view from the bar piece with pictures of the maiden with many dubious dudes. Bad news, Jonathan King and Percy Plant. Hurtling into 1987, issue 140 slaps the five-piece on the cover, a sixth cover, as they celebrate coming top in the reader's poll yet again. Have we reached peak maiden yet? No. Hallowed be thy name, Adrian. A little cover insert hints at a giant poster of Eddie and his squad inside waiting to be tacked up on your wall in issue 142. 145, it's off to Madison Square Gardens for a gig review where a firecracker is thrown on stage and kabooms two feet away from Bruce, nearly tearing the spandex right off him. The perpetrator earned a torrent of a Bruce abuse as he went on to berate the crowd for launching their seat covers around him, telling the minority to get the fuck out and never return to a maiden show. Oh God! How's that for a Brucey lunge? I parried. <laughs> Soon after, Iron Maiden ran to the hills with a merciful lull of Kerrang! coverage for 11 whole months. Until March 1988. An issue 178. <gasps> where the lads are hiding inside, on page three, nestled among a selection of baps. 
Madness, it reads, taped across eight breasts, with the five tits of Iron Maiden sticking out chins between the girls' shoulders. Oh, I remember this. <laughs> Thing is, were they allowed to play with all of this madness? Hmm. Chris Welch found out in an interview with Bruce, which dripped over into the next issue. And we finally succumb, seven years later, to Iron Maiden's seventh studio album and a seventh Maiden man cover. Issue 183, April 16th, 1988. Steve Harris wags his finger to the viewer. The ugly face of metal, it screams. A sixth page, seventh son spread satisfies our souls. Inside also, Chris Welch reviews Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, calling it the eighth wonder. Maiden's greatest achievement thus far. For here's a collection of songs unified with a dramatic and engrossing theme, delivered with a confidence and enthusiasm often sought after and rarely achieved. A great rock album that will eventually be hailed along such past milestones as Tommy, Tubular Bells, and Tiffany. I don't think he said the last bit. So that's Kerrang! Iron Maiden were appearing on the cover nearly every week, and I just wonder if there was metalheads who were as pissed off as pop fans seeing Bross on the cover of Smash Hits every second week. That's why that was quite a lengthy uh, travel through the pages of Kerrang! Because it was one of their own, you know, Kerrang! UK rock magazine, Maiden. <laughs> yeah! So Seven Son, yeah. Later on, Dickinson would say that we almost did something great and explains that it was only half a concept album. He said there was no attempt to see it all the way through like we really should have done. Seven Son has no story. It's about good and evil, heaven and hell. But isn't every Iron Maiden record? Iron Maiden, Seven Son of a Seven Son, the best Iron Maiden album that they've ever produced. Their powers were gushing on this album and never to be replicated ever again. They became weak and flaccid thereafter. You described them as weak and flaccid after this. You should really listen to A Matter of Life and Death, which is probably one of their heaviest releases. Don't care! And seven Son of a Seven Son. In my opinion, Iron Maiden's best album. My favourite. This little exploration of it has just made me love it more. And for the first time, I really understand the concept and what went into it. And we hope you enjoyed it too. And if you have any suggestions for what we think on Nostalgia that we should review as a classic album, keep them to yourself. That's it from this episode of Nostalgia, where we were looking back at the classic album Seven Son of a Seven Son. We'll be back again very soon with another classic rock album on... <laughs>